It really is a joy to be with you this morning and uh, also with those of you who are tuning in um, online. It, early in January, I was asked by Northbrook Church to preach at uh, one of their Sunday sermons or Sunday mornings. They were in the middle of a series um, called Taming the Dragons on mental health. It was very, very timely. Um, for those of you who, many of you might be aware, um, but I'm hyper aware of it just by being uh, in the work. But it was predicted a year ago that we would be at some point in this pandemic facing a mental health pandemic that we are not prepared for. Um, and I will tell you that within the last eight weeks, that mental health pandemic has hit full force. Um, and it is predicted that needs will outweigh resources nationwide for the next three years. Um, every colleague that I'm talking to about this um, verifies, validates the very same thing. Um, and so I would just really, really covet your prayers for all mental health practitioners, whether they're in a big medical conglomerate, doing it private practice um, the way many of us are, or in different clinic settings as well. But the needs are um, unbelievable. But uh, in this sermon that I did, um, they wanted me to do it on depression and anxiety, which are two of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, it's As a therapist, it's something that I work with in, I would say, the majority of clients because it's so prevalent and something that the majority of my life, um, starting at age five, um, it finally got diagnosed and treated at age 35. I'm turning 54, so it's been a long time. Um, I have suffered with both. Um, in ebbs and flows. And so personally, professionally, um, and also pastorally, it's just something that's been near and dear to my heart. I had decided that I was going to take, though, on, during that sermon, a much more pastoral perspective and approach on the topic. You can get a lot of good information on depression and anxiety. Um, I think resources and education um, has really increased because of this pandemic that we're in. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of facts and figures, but really want to be able to provide a pastoral perspective for you. It was very well received. You never know how a sermon like this is going to be received um, and decided that because of that, I would dust it off and um, share it with you this morning as well. The last song that we sang, um, In My Father's House, There's a Place for Me, There's a Place for Us. Um, when the Gospel of John talks about the Father's house, it's talking about referencing a temporary dwelling that after life in this body, we go to to rest with Jesus until the second resurrection, until Jesus comes again. But in terms of the scriptures talking about the Father's house, generally speaking, the Father's house is this earth, this place, the everyday ins and outs of the life that we live, the ups and downs. And so the text that I'm going to be using this morning is Psalm 23 that talks about the presence of God in so many different ways, shapes, and forms that meets us in every aspect of life because God makes his dwelling um, with human beings in everything they face, including depression and anxiety. What I want to start out with, though, is I want to demystify these dragons of depression and anxiety just by giving you some short statistics. 
Um, I thought these would be really helpful for you. What I tell people all the time is that what stays mythical or myst like mystical, a mystery, it never gets addressed. And there are so many still myths and um, erroneous information out about these two aspects of mental health. I thought I would um, give you some stats to help clear um, any confusion. When we talk about depression, okay, we all have times that we are feeling depression, oftentimes circumstantially. That's a normal part of, of the human experience. And by the way, even clinical aspects of depression are becoming more and more normal parts of the human experience. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. When we talk about depression, though, that is problematic for people and needs to be addressed at a, at a professional level, at a medical level, the best description that I can give you is that kind of a depression is defined as a low mood that is severe, it is persistent, and it interferes with daily life. And those three descriptors are really important. It's severe, it's persistent, and it interferes with daily life. I tell clients who, who are suffering from depression, it's almost like the, de the depression creates a lens, a set of glasses through which you see and experience everything else. And those lenses distort everything through depression. When we talk about anxiety that's clinical in nature, that really needs some intervention, the best definition that I can give you from our diagnostic manuals, very similar to depression, are their persistent feelings of worry and fear that are out of proportion to actual events and they interfere with everyday life. Anxiety as well is like putting on a set of distorted glasses, but I'm also gonna say it's almost like having hearing aids that are way overtuned to every possible bad thing that could happen and you hear and you see and you interpret things through this anxiety, and it's very pervasive and interferes with functioning in everyday life. Like I said before, both of these are very common. 18% of the adult population suffers with depression, 19% with anxiety. The latest statistics just coming out after the pandemic is at this stage here, is that anxiety has increased by three times, depression four times, and suicide rates as well. Both anxiety and depression, the way I just described them, it is not an issue of character. It is not just a psychological issue. We call these biopsychosocial spiritual experiences. They are a whole person experience. Do not ever let anybody give you the lie from the pit of hell that if you are depressed or anxious, you have a problem of faith. You are an embodied creature by design by your creator, your creator, who has designed the body, the mind, the soul, the nervous system, the psyche, to function as one. And when one of those things is off, and in depression and anxiety, there's almost always a biological or biochemical component, the whole being will not function as God designed. And so treatment requires that we address that at every single level. So effective treatment aims at everything, the spiritual, um, the biological or biochemical. Um, we look at psychological things, 
cognitions that people have that are both sometimes at the root, but also sometimes very much shaped by these two mental illnesses, but treating them all is really important. The other good news, and this is the stuff that breaks my heart, um, because prognosis for both is amazing. Um, most people completely recover when they are treated adequately from both depression and anxiety. And even those that have what we would call a treatment-resistant depression or anxiety, we are able to give them enough through all different kinds of mechanisms where their symptoms will be relieved enough that they can function pretty normally in everyday life. The heartbreaking thing for me is that with all this erroneous information that we're given, and oftentimes the spiritual errors that are given as well in terms of interpretation about these two things, cause people to shy away from treatment and try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they never get the healing that could be theirs really quickly and very effectively if they were to get the help. So that's the only part of this entire sermon that I'm going to give that is anything clinical in nature, with the exception of just a smidge here and there as we go along. But um, one of my favorite psalms, and by the way, I'm not just preaching out of this because it's my favorite psalm, but it is one of my favorite psalms, is Psalm 23. And I've said to people before, it is so interesting to me that this psalm is mainly read at funerals, often at funerals, but the more I look into this psalm, it is not a psalm for death. It is a psalm for life, about the goodness and the provision of Christ himself, the shepherd, the chief shepherd, just settling down with us in the ins and outs, the peaks and the valleys, the stormy parts, the scary parts, the light parts, providing for us with presence and with provision all the time. So I'm going to read this psalm um, out loud, and I think it should be on the screen. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely... Goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a beautiful psalm. One nice gift about having some anxiety um, as a human being is that it can force some order and structure in my life because, you know, it can be a little OCD. So typically when I prepare a sermon, I like to kind of chunk it around different themes and so for those of you who like to stay organized, for those of you who are random, don't worry about remembering this, but there are five themes this morning from this psalm related to how God meets us in these places of our anxiety and our depression that I think this psalm just em embraces. They are the themes of acceptance, the theme of embracing limits, the theme of recognizing the real enemies, the theme of embracing what our true identity is, 
and embracing that goodness is available to us all the time in the here and now, smack dab in the middle of the bad. Acceptance, limits, enemies, identity, and goodness. Acceptance, it all belongs. And when I say it all belongs, I am not saying everything is good. Depression and anxiety in and of themselves are not good. Death from viruses we cannot control are not good. When I talk about acceptance and everything belonging, it means that our creator and our shepherd, Jesus, has made room for everything that we would experience as a human being. In fact, he took it into himself on the cross. That's a whole other sermon. But acceptance, embracing that it all belongs, means that there is nothing that catches our Jesus off guard and nothing that he doesn't settle right in and meet us with provision in. There was a study in my professional organization that came out a number of years ago that was taking a look at what is it that causes therapists to become impaired, meaning uh, therapists that turn towards drug and alcohol to deal with stress, um, how they get burnt, burned out in particular. And there were two things that this study discovered. The first is that there are really two attitudes that therapists embrace that were uncovered in this study that lead to burnout. The first attitude is I should be above experiencing whatever my clients are experiencing, that somehow by virtue of me doing this work, I should be above the human experience. The second attitude that was uncovered is that if I do experience, God forbid, something that my clients experience, I ought to be able to dig deep and find internal resources to get myself through it and out of it. As I was looking at those two attitudes, it dawned on me that I have heard these two attitudes in another place. And it isn't just with therapists. It's with Christians. That because I am a Christian, I should be above and live transcendent of the human experience. And God forbid I experience anything that other human beings experience. I should be able to find the resources internally in the Word, in Bible study, to pull myself up and out of that pit. One of the most beautiful aspects of Christianity is that our chief shepherd was a fully functioning human being. The new Adam, the one true human, fully God. That completely reframes the human experience. The human experience is what God uses, what God embraces, where God meets us. Don't be fooled by the, the lie that the normal human experience, which includes the ups and downs of things even like depression and anxiety, are somehow something that Christians need to transcend. We are human beings because we are made in the image of our creator. And Jesus was the one true human 
who has showed us the way back to our true humanity. It belongs. The psalm references things like the whole picture. There's meadows and there's quiet waters. Then there's dark valleys, but there's also high places. There's enemies, there's missteps, but there's also things like the rod and the staff and the table and the cup and the oil and all these things. There's good and bad all mixed in. This is the experience of the sheep, the experience of people who follow God. God says, don't be afraid. I get it, I've made room for all this, and I'm going to meet you right here. Acceptance means God's economy, his kingdom, has made room for the human experience. The human experience is not a bad thing. It's not as it ought to be, but it's not all bad. It's a beautiful, sacred thing, and God meets us in that place. Part of acceptance also has to do with accepting limits. And this psalm, it doesn't tell us this explicitly, but it does tell us implicitly that there is a gift of limits. The fact that this psalm references that sheep are led by quiet waters and they lie down in still meadows, that the shepherd has to carry protective equipment um, and have certain skills, imply that the sheep that this psalm is referencing have limits. They don't always know the way because they're not omniscient. They're not stupid, but they're not omniscient. Um, Sometimes, yeah, they have a misstep off the path. They get curious. They get distracted. They get tangled up. Sometimes they're very unaware of enemies, and there are enemies that are pursuing them, all kinds of things. Uh, There are limits about being a human being, and limits are good. From the beginning of creation, God created the world with limits. There are limits to just how far the water can cover the earth. There are limits to how long daylight is. There are limits to how long the nighttime is. Limits are a good thing. And this psalm embraces the acceptance that the sheep, you and I who follow the shepherd, have limits. I have a twin sister. She is married to my husband's first cousin. Some of you may know that. It is legal, but it is very, very interesting dynamic-wise in the family. She has two labs, dogs, at all times. Always a yellow lab, always a black lab, and I think at some point she might add a chocolate one. I'm not sure. But one of her labs is named Gracie. This dog, then they live on a lake. This dog could chase balls and chase her little whatever this, the buoy is out into the lake, I kid you not, for 13 hours straight. They didn't think that this was a problem and thought maybe this was just how you know, Gracie operated until one day Gracie was dragging herself up from the lake only using her front um, paws. And they took her to the vet because they were really concerned. And lo and behold, they found out that Gracie has a malfunction in her brain that there is something in the brain that isn't working that indicates to dogs that they're tired. So this dog has absolutely no sense that she's tired. And so she would, if she, if she could, left you know, to her own devices, basically swim herself or run herself to death. And so my sister and brother-in-law need to be able to monitor how much time she does this. 
limits are good. We need to be able to listen to signals here um, about when we need rest. Culturally speaking, we all have a malfunction that operates in very similar ways to what my, what would it be, my niece Gracie, dog niece, I guess, Gracie has. It's all so weird anyways. Um, but basically, in our culture, we pride ourselves on being 24-7 and efficient. We are able to have access to more information than is good for us, which gives a little hook and a little temptation of invitation, you all can be and we all can be omniscient. Um, more and more and more, nothing ever stops. If you want something, if you want to achieve something, you can have it, you can get it, you can achieve it, nothing stops. The culture has a malfunction in it. What does this have to do with depression and anxiety? Well, guess what? There's a whole new line of thinking that there's a new category of depressive and anxious disorders that have nothing to do with genetic predisposition, and they don't have to do with just biochemistry either. They are created when load exceeds capacity too long, when people's frontal lobes do not shut down, when people cannot get off technology and converse and be face-to-face -face with one another. Limits are good. They are God's design. They are gifts. As followers of Jesus, we need quiet waters. We need still meadows. Because so much of the rest of our life are in the valleys and in the high places, and contending with real enemies. And if we don't get that rest, we will not function. God makes room for the human experience, but part of how God has designed the human experience to work the best is a given that human beings have limits. Limits are good. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us. There are two enemies, this fear, this uh, psalm references it, there are two enemies that are going to get in the way of us accepting limits and also accepting our humanity. They are fear and they are shame. And again, implicitly this psalm is referencing that these two things would be present. Now, before I talk about the downside of fear and shame, I do want to tell you that we all need to have a degree of fear, and we all need to have a degree of shame. The way that I would define a healthy fear is that it is a sober awareness that there is danger or something that needs to be avoided or we need to be careful about but it's in proper proportion and it leads to protection. It leads to goodness, it leads to thriving, but it is fairly accurate, a sober awareness. People who do these crazy, like rock scaling things and jumping off of things, they've done brain studies on people like this, 
have you guys heard this? And they've discovered that the fear response in the brain is not functioning properly. That's why they're so brave, because they have no sense of fear. We need to have enough sober awareness so we're not getting into dangerous stuff. We also need to have a healthy degree of shame. Shame gets a terrible rap, and there's parts of it that ought to. But we need to have shame that tells us, oh, I have crossed a line. I have done something wrong. I have harmed another person. I have violated my own integrity. Or we would be sociopaths. We also need to be able to have a degree of shame that says, oh, darn it, I have limits. Gosh, I really wanted to run this marathon, but you know what? I'm 50, almost 54, and oh, my knee is just not going to let me. Or, man, I really wanted to pull an all-nighter to get something done, but, man, I'm pooped. That kind of natural shame is a gift as well. We need some fear and we need shame. The kind of fear and shame that are enemies, though, are not like that. They are very, very distorted. And, by the way, both depression and anxiety will increase both. I'm going to say that again. Depression and anxiety will increase the toxic experiences of both fear and shame. This is the message that fear has. Everything is scarce. Get as much as you can while you can. I was uh, at the Y this week, finally back, doing some weightlifting. And they have TVs everywhere. It drives me nuts. And I'm, as I'm doing this one set of machines, I'm looking at these lines, and on one TV it says, basically, race for the vaccine. And by the way, I'm so thankful for the, for the vaccine. It's just the language that drives me crazy. Race for the vaccine. And then on the other screen at the same time, it was panic at the pumps. You know what this says? Scarcity. Like panic at the pumps, panic at this, fear about this, fear about this. The media sells through fear. And I'm not saying there aren't things we need to be soberly aware of, but fear screams there is not enough, never enough, hoard it, get it while you can at anyone's expense. Jesus the shepherd says, look at the lilies. Consider the birds. I know there's a lot to be concerned about here, but I will give you what you need when you need it. In Jesus, there's enough. And by the way, what we know about why there's true scarcity, whether it's in our neighborhoods or whether it's around the world, has nothing to do with God not providing. It's with God's human beings hoarding and misusing resources. It is not God's fault. There's always enough. But fear will scream, there's never enough. So keep hustling, keep scrambling, keep pushing the limits to hoard more time, hoard more stuff, hoard more relationships, whatever it may be. And anxiety and depression just distort that even more. The message that shame has, it's not that there isn't enough. It's that I am not enough. 
I am defective. My sins, my mistakes, my deficits, the things that people misunderstand about me, tell me I'm defective, I'm not enough. I don't make what another person makes. I don't have what another person has. I don't have the smarts another person has. I am not enough. Those are the perpetual enemies that have been around from the beginning of time. Go back and read the account of that serpent when things were still all good all the time. He was breathing fear and defectiveness. Hoard what belongs to God. He's keeping something from you. And you will be less than human if you don't eat from that tree. Fear and shame are the enemies that keep us from accepting our humanity, accepting the humanity of others, and accepting limits. Anxiety and depression exacerbate those things, but fear and shame that are not resolved properly can also create depression and anxiety. Those are our enemies. The antidote to these enemies has to do with our identity and embracing our identity. And I know we talk a lot about in Christian circles about the true self and all of that, And I think sometimes we could be drilling down and looking at our navel for a long time and never really figure out who the true self is. So that's not what I'm going to be, you know, guiding us into this morning. But what I am going to do is talk about identity really quickly, just from the perspective of sheep. You know, for a long time, I'm always like intrigued by the metaphors that scripture uses for human beings. And sheep has always intrigued me, but I've gotten it wrong for a long time. For a long time, I thought that sheep were dumb, that they had really small brains, which they probably do because they have small heads, but they're not dumb. I just read something recently when I was preparing for this sermon a couple months ago um, about actually that sheep are amazingly smart, that they have survived domestication. And they're smart for a couple of reasons. One is they are very communal creatures. Apparently, right after a lamb is born, it will immediately seek the herd because it knows that that is how it's going to survive. It needs its people. But the other thing that is remarkable about sheep is not only are they communal and they know they need that for survival, they also, and I mean truly, when when John, I think it's 10, talks about the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, do you know that sheep, even though they're very communal, Each one of them, they can learn the specific intonation of the voice of their shepherd. That was verified by a modern-day shepherd. I just read an article that he wrote. Sheep are amazingly smart animals. They're communal, and they are attuned to the voice of their shepherd. If we want to boil down to our identity in Christ being the simplest thing, We attune our voice to the one who sees us and loves us as the one individually, knows everything about us, and, not but, but and, our single identity that is seen, known, and loved is completed in other people. 
I am not talking about marriage, not talking about romantic relationships. I am talking about being in community with other human beings. God's people is primary, but I think all of humanity is all part of that as well. We know we are known, seen, and loved as, as one by the one who loves us, and we know that we are loved, shaped, and formed, and seen, and carry on God's work together in community. Anxiety and depression are unbelievably isolating. And for people who are suffering with it, one of the things they really struggle with is oftentimes they will say, I do not hear the voice of the shepherd. I have lost a sense of God's touch. It's a very normal experience. Heartbreaking, but normal when people are suffering from it. It's why we want to help them get it treated. But the other thing is, they don't want to be with other people. They want to be alone. That's how it really interferes with daily functioning. So, our identity, we are valuable and we are vulnerable. And Jesus knows that that's both. And we can embrace that in ourselves. What I want to end on this morning is this, the theme of goodness in the here and now. In most of our Christian teaching, it's been erroneous. It is getting changed. Some of you in this room have heard me say this ad nauseum, but I don't care. We've gotten it wrong. We have embraced, and I am not going to shy away from saying this, a very passive suicidal ideation when it comes to what Christian existence means. We were sinners. We were saved. And now we're trying to do really good Christian things and get more people to be Christians so that one day we can leave this God-forsaken place and go to heaven. That is not a healthy way to live. Psalm 23 is so implicit about the reality God loves this place. God makes his dwelling here in creation with people. Loves the trees, loves the flowers, loves the birds, you name it. Loves this place. Always has, always will. Dwelling is here. So often, one of the things that adds to our depression and anxiety is that we forget that we don't have to wait till the then and there to experience God's goodness. God's goodness is here and now, and it's a foretaste of what is going to be fully complete in the here and now, one day when Christ comes again. Listen to how David ends this psalm. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is making it very clear that goodness and love are here in the provision of the shepherd all the time. How? Well, through practical things like the rod and the staff. In modern-day language, we could say medication, we could say therapist, we could say good food, we could say exercise, good companionship, whatever it may be. But practical things. Goodness is here, chasing us in the here and now. How about this table that we're talking about? Well, it means that Jesus is generous. Jesus hosts us. Jesus shows us off in front of the enemies of fear and shame. And we could get into the more of the literal meaning of that, but I don't even think it's necessary. 
The reality is that in the here and now, our shepherd sets a table for us and with us to express to our enemies, this one is mine. And this one also belongs to a whole group of people that I know I love and I have purposed to bring forth my goodness in the here and now on this earth. The provision of the shepherd is in the here and now. We don't have to wait for the then and there. It's a whole reframe. And we'll miss the goodness and the provision if we're not able to reframe that. So, how do we tame these dragons of depression and anxiety? Well, if you're suffering in some of the ways I talked about early on in those stats, get the help that you need. Relief is available. Like prognosis and treatment is so effective, it's so good. And if you, you don't have to see me, um, but I'm happy to get you connected to some people that you could. But pastorally and theologically speaking, we let the shepherd provide goodness, chase us with it day in and day out. In the house of the Lord, this place, our daily lives, the meadows, the valleys, the peaks, even in the midst of the enemies, and we're comforted by that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are a God who took on humanity, flesh and blood. And not because humanity was so terrible, but because you wanted to repurpose and reclaim humanity. We also thank you that we do not have to wait for some transcendent day or place to experience your goodness and our identity and purpose. It is in the here and now, in the everyday places of life. I ask that you would take whatever little nuggets fit and that are of you, and you would tailor make them to each soul here to provide comfort, to provide healing, but also to provide a more fully functioning humanity in each of us individually and us corporately. And then, Lord Jesus, I also pray that as we continue to embrace you as the one true human who is also fully God, and we grow in our humanity, that there would be something amazingly and refreshingly attractive about Christianity that right now most of this culture, and for good reason, is unable to see. We ask this in the powerful name of the crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus. Amen.